Don't do things that damage your health today. Eat an excess of sugar, not exercise. Do drugs. Engage in risky sexual behavior. Commit low-level crimes. Don't do things that will permanently affect your future in a negative way. And if you take that and turn it on its head, you can actually say, well, what can I do today that would vastly benefit future me? Hello, and welcome to the Optimal Agency Podcast. My name is Patrick Cummings. I'm joined by John Gilson. Together with you, we are exploring the ideas of agency, diving deep to discover a set of guidelines on how each of us can best operate in the day-to-day to maximize our personal autonomy, professional freedom, and ultimately our positive impact on the world. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. How are you, John? Easy like Sunday morning, Pat. <laughs> and it's not Sunday morning just for folks. It's not. It's just That's just a feeling. Okay, my friend. Uh, as, we are, as we have been doing over the last few episodes, we've got a slightly uh, evolved format. We're going to answer a listener question. We're going to get into a main conversation today, which is gonna, going to be our advice to 20-year-olds, which I'm really excited to dive into with you. And then we're going to wrap this thing up with uh, a hot take, uh, something in the news that I found recently that I want your thoughts on. We are going to do Listener question from Sandy to kick things off. Sandy, a little context for her. She's a realtor of 20 years, 52 years old, living in the Northern Virginia, DC area, which she notes is a high cost of living. She's got a, uh, her husband is a fireman. Uh, he's a fire chief of 30 years and will be providing a pension in retirement, which is about two to three years away. Okay, so that's the context and here's her, what she labels as her current problem. She says, assigning surplus cash in a smart way. I have PTSD from working 100% commission. My annual gross income can swing from 150K to 250K in any given year. This year, I'm currently at 250K gross and starting to have tax panic. I feel like I'm hoarding money instead of investing it. I have a 30K surplus currently. She gave us some options. She says, do I... Uh, A, add to my SEP, which is currently at 150K. B, uh, pay vendors for 2024 before the December 31st for the bet, for the better tax break. She says, I like this option for what it's worth. Or C, just stare at it sitting in my bank account and continue to feel a sense of peace like no other. <laughs> so A, B, or C, she gave us some options. What do you think? Yeah, D. <laughs> You're such a contrarian. Yeah, none of the above. <laughs> well, of the what above. I, what I want for you, Sandy, is an answer that gets you a system for handling this going forward so that you don't have to answer A, B, or C every year. And so I want to start with how is your business organized? It should be organized at that level of earning as an LLC with an S-corp election. Uh, What that will allow you to do is actually pay yourself as if you were a corporation. So you can get a paycheck from your company, and then anything that's left over in profits, you can take as dividends rather than income. And we know that dividend taxation is done at a much lower rate than income taxation, so that's going to benefit your taxes. So that said, and all of that said, talk to your CPA, not me, because I am not a CPA, but let's apply kind of what I know about the situation to yours. You're making 150000 at the bottom end and 250000 on the top end. So you've got that variance. What you want to do is you want to set up your paycheck to pay you based on the bottom end. So let's go through some numbers. You have 150000 a year in gross income. Out of that, you're going to first 
set yourself a regular paycheck. Now, IRS guidelines are about 50% of profit needs to be taken as a paycheck. They call that a reasonable salary, which is just as vague as it sounds, but generally the advice that I've gotten is about 50% of your profits uh, can be your paycheck. So set up payroll through your CPA or through Gusto or some similar service. And what I'd recommend is that of the 150 you have on the low end, take $100,000 and earmark that for your payment. And here's why I say 100,000 and not 75,000. You still have to pay Social Security, Medicare, and FICA taxes. So $100,000, assuming that you have a 25% tax rate, will result in a take-home of $75,000, half your income. That's about $6,250 a month. That's your paycheck. Now, the remainder on a low-earning year is $50,000. That will be taxed as dividends at a 15% rate. So if we take that $50,000 and we multiply it by 0.85, that's another $42,500 in take-home, which turns out to be about $3,500 a month. So between your paycheck and your take-home in your least earning year, you'll bring home $9,791.66. Let's call it 10 grand a month. Your job now between your husband's income and yours is to make sure you can live on 10 grand. Your 10 grand plus whatever he's bringing home. The surplus, you're saying, well, how do I allocate the rest? What about a year where I earn 100000 Well, you're going to have to waive your paycheck up, but this is where you need a CPA and not optimal agency. You're going to have to alter your paycheck amounts, and you're saying, hey, should I invest this money? Should I use it to reduce my future tax burden? Should I, uh, should I sit it in my bank account? And that's... It's never C, Sandy. It's never C. Set up the system so that you don't have to look at it, your bank account. Automate these things. And if you're in Northern Virginia, in that DC area, you probably can't go a block without hitting 16 very, very high qualified CPAs who help very high net worth people spend a whole lot less in taxes. Go get one and pay them. It will be worth every dime. My one follow up question to that is and we can we can use Sandy as a good example, but I think we can extrapolate it out, which is the the world of real estate. And again, extrapolate that out to any number of kind of freelance or, or non-traditional work can be a little bit of a feast or famine. Right. There can be some really good months and then some months where where it just the, the natural decline of it. Does that strategy, what you just laid out, does that help? get through the sort of the feast and famine cycles of, again, the, the world of real estate? Or is that actually a reason that it may not work in the sense of like, well, yeah, that makes sense to give yourself a paycheck every month, but some months, a lot more come in and some, month, some months, a lot less comes in. So Sandy has 20 years of her career. She has 20 years of data on how much money is going to come in. It doesn't matter what comes in next month. It shouldn't matter, right? Uh, now, I think quite the opposite happens psychologically. So if you set up your payroll so that you are getting paid based on the least amount of money you think you'll earn and you set up your cost of living accordingly, everything else feels like a bonus. So when you write yourself a surprise dividend check for 10 or 15 or $25,000 and then you get to invest it, it feels like Christmas. And about once a quarter, once a fiscal quarter, every three months, you can kind of look and say, am I tracking? You know, do I need to pay myself more? Do I need to take a dividend? Is 
the cash accruing. And so by setting up against the minimum, you set yourself up for a psychological upside as well. The other thing to get used to, and this is more psychological advice from the, from the unqualified, but this is just my own experience, is that you have to let go of the fear of the cycle. You understand that real estate goes through a cycle. In other words, there will be times like 2021 where you can sell a cardboard box in an alley for $400,000 and pull your 3% rip and money's going to fall from the heavens and buyers are going to be coming out of the woodwork and you don't have to work. But there are also going to be times when you couldn't sell, uh, you know, uh, you know, 2008, 2009, 2013, you couldn't sell uh, something of very high value for half of what it was worth three years prior. And now all your, your rips as a real estate agent are half of that. So what Sandy should do in addition to having this payroll system is have an emergency fund, right? So if we think the average real estate cycle lasts, let's say the average real estate cycle lasts four years, five years. I'm making that up, but I bet it's not too far off, right? And she's going to earn half of what she needs to live on for two of those years as the cycle hits bottom. You may want to take a year, 50%, of your income and just have it in the bank and be prepared to spend it to make up for that paycheck, contribute it as capital, fund that paycheck, et cetera. Uh, but the idea is use your excess cash wisely, not simply as a hedge against something bad might happen. Decide how bad something bad could possibly be. In this case, we're saying you could get 50% of your income, save against that. And then when that, that, Reserve account is topped out, put it in high interest, make it immediately accessible, and don't worry about it anymore. You've got it covered. Take it. All right. Hope that was helpful. Sandy, if you would like uh, to get a question into a future episode, the easiest way to do it is to sign up for our newsletter, optimalagency.co slash newsletter. We send it out every Tuesday morning. We have a link in there. We've got, a, I think, a couple links in there uh, that you can hit. You can ans you can ask us a question. You can also uh, just reply to that newsletter, and we will also get that. So that is the best way, not only to get some more Optimal Agency in your life, but uh, the best way to get a question into a future episode. All right, my friend, our main conversation this week is going to be some advice for 20-year-olds. And I think that the spark for this came from a question that, and correct me, because I think you got this question, which was, hey, I find myself in the position of giving advice to 20-year-olds. What advice do you have for me so that I can give advice to 20-year-olds? So I think that's where this is coming from, but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. So I have a consulting client, uh, one of my one of my regular clients uh, uh, was bemoaning the fact that many of his friends are not financially literate in their 30s, 40s, and 50s and uh, saying, hey, I'd really like to short circuit this plague in my life of adults who have no idea what to do with money, what would you tell a 20-year-old to do with money? And of course, I couldn't frame that as just dollars. Uh, we have to frame that in the context of not only wealth, but also health and time. And so I wrote uh, that client a little essay, you know, probably about <laughs> about 400 words of advice for 20-year-olds. Uh, and and uh, we can have a conversation about what came out of that as well as uh, the evolution in thinking about, hey, what else should you tell a 20-year-old? Mm, I love that. Um, okay, so I think the the big overarching thing we want to talk about and maybe where we can start and dive into this conversation is recognizing 
the two yous, <laughs> recognizing you, recognizing the, the present day you and recognizing the future you and, and, and thinking about how can we, how can I respect each one of those yous, each one of those people? And so let's start there. And then I think we're going to, we're going to get into some specific advice in both or in all uh, three categories that we talk about here, health, wealth, and time freedom. But first, zoom out, you present you and future you. Yeah. So the idea is couched in delayed gratification, but it's also couched in the idea that your life should never suck. In other words, we want to keep your uh, standard of living relatively constant throughout your life. But I think about future you and present you, and this applies to 20-year-olds because there's a lot of future them and not a whole lot of present them yet. But you could easily port this to a 30-year-old or 40-year-old or 50-year-old or an 80-year-old, right? Don't do anything today that would put future you in a compromised position. What does that mean? Well, don't do things that damage your health today eat an excess of sugar, not exercise, do drugs, engage in risky sexual behavior, commit low-level crimes. Don't do things that will permanently affect your future in a negative way. And if you take that and turn it on its head, you can actually say, well, what can I do today that would vastly benefit future me? And if I can pivot here a little bit, there's this concept that I really love from Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. And it's really simple. It's treat yourself like you're somebody that you care about. And that's not an exact quote, but it's essentially the idea that not only should you treat you today like you're somebody you care about, you should have in your mind you at 30 and 40 and 50 and 80 and say, what can I do to help that person? in the realms of health, wealth, and time. And I think if you can start to think this way and you can really close your eyes and start to internalize what does that person look like? What do they feel like? What is their life like? And what can I do for them today? You're going to make a lot of good decisions really early on. And the upside of making good decisions early on is they compound over time for a really long time. So I'd love to talk about what those good decisions are. Yeah, let's do that. I want to um, introduce or I want to just bring in a nice quote that I love from Naval Ravikant as our, our entry point into thinking specifically about health, wealth, and time in this particular season of life. This is what um, Naval Ravikant says. He says, when you're young, you have time, you have health, but you have no money. When you're middle-aged, you have money and you have health, but you have no time. When you're old, you have money and you have time, but you have no health. <laughs> so the trifecta is trying to get all three at once. And so I think our conversation is... Um, tr thinking about how to do that, how to get that trifecta such that you never have a period where you're high someplace and low anywhere else, right? The presumption being like, as Naval says, like when you're young, you've got time, you've got health, but you have no money. Okay. That's a, that is the case for most people. I think our conversation is going to be like, well, what if it wasn't right? So let's start then with, uh, with wealth. Where do we begin conversation or where do we begin uh, advice for 20 year olds as it relates to wealth. Yeah. The number one thing that you can do as a young person to have wealth, uh, is 
not necessarily to save, although I'm going to recommend that you do and you start really early because that will guarantee when you're old and have uh, wealth and time, you have a lot of wealth. Uh, but what you actually need to do is acquire the hard and soft skills that will maximize your earnings as soon as possible. Now, when Naval talks about that typical, that's a typical life course right? That balance between health, wealth, and time. We can consider an atypical course. And an atypical course would say that I'm going to get the hard and soft skills that I need to avail myself not only of being in the investor class, but potentially of being high earning working for somebody else. And as soon as possible, porting those skills into working for myself. Because the people who have the most benefit from any given enterprise are not the people that work at it. They're the people who own it. And you have the advantage when you're young of getting the skills working for somebody else and immediately turning into those skills of working for yourself. And, you know, I, I'd love to tell a story that's going to contradict some things I'm going to say later. And let me just let me just tell you what I'm going to say later. I'm going to say go to college. My twin brother did not. And when we were 15 in the rural New Hampshire town that we grew up in, uh, he went to work f as a landscaper, grunt labor, right? Dig the ditch, spread the mulch, plant the tree, this kind of thing. And what he realized is that the man that he was working for was not smarter than him and was in fact worse at selling than him, was worse at customer service than him, was worse at showing up than him. And so when we were 18, and I was applying to college. My brother bought a little Nissan pickup truck and a push lawn mower. And he started mowing lawns at speed. Basically, he'd work from sunup to sundown. Uh, and he realized and ported that into, wait a minute, I don't have to work for what at that point was probably seven or eight dollars an hour. I can work for 20 or 30 or 40 because that's what he's charging the client. And then he figured out that, well, if he can hire people to do that job. I can hire people to do that job. And my brother slowly but surely, and not even that slowly, took over the landscaping demand for that entire town. And it was just done on the simple realization that he had a few soft skills, sales, right? And a few hard skills. I can do this labor and I'll do it quickly and I'll do it with good customer service that gave him a competitive advantage in ownership. That is not something that should escape every 20 year old out there. You can take the skills, learn the skills, and here's the important part, apply them. And you can apply them from some for someone else's ends. And if you choose the right skills, you can get a great paycheck. But if you apply them to your own ends and you combine them with soft skills like selling, uh, you win all the way. You don't have to wait until you're 40 or 50 to have money. You can have money when you're 25. Mm-hmm. I think the the interesting part about that story is just the time frame when it happened. I think I think these days, given the kind of the current culture and and what we're exposed to through media and social media, the the idea that you can be an entrepreneur or that you can start your own thing, whether it's a landscaping service or a fill in the blank, is a lot more. It's a lot closer to everybody's reach now. If if you are even remotely kind of paying attention to it, but to your brother. And to you and I, when we started again faster, like it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't seem like a path that was available to, to quote unquote normal people. And so I, you know, I, I say all that to just like, 
this is an opportunity not for some people, but for a lot of people. And I think we're, it's becoming more culturally acceptable that that is a path. And I think that's only a good thing thinking about the 20 year olds because it's not, it's not the, it's not as hard a conversation as, Hey, mom and dad, I'm not going to college. I'm going to double down on this landscaping business. And that doesn't seem it absolutely insane. Whereas I would guess 20 years ago, it was at least closer to insane than it was like, Oh yeah, I can see, I can see that. That, that makes some amount of sense. One of the things that I believe about my brother and what he did is that he's relatively lucky. And I think most successful entrepreneurs are relatively lucky. That's not to discount the hard work. But he was in a town full of retirees who were rich, who had nothing better to spend their money on than, I don't want that oak tree in my view of that lake anymore. Please come cut it down. And uh, that's, again, not to minimize the hard work or the skill or the labor. It's just to understand that on average, if you do not go to college, you will not earn nearly what a college graduate does. And if you go to college, uh, you have an opportunity to get the hard skills that are now most highly valued by the market. So I looked up some statistics. Uh, and this is from the, the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. So the lifetime earnings of a high school graduate, about $1.6 million over a 40-year career. Uh, you can just say that's $400,000 a year. Or, I'm sorry, $40,000 a year. You go to college, that goes from $1.6 million to $2.8 million. Okay, so that's plus uh, $1.2 million or another $30,000 in earnings a year. The average college graduate's at $70,000. Uh, the top of the stack, professional degrees, MBA, JD, they're going to earn $4.7 million a year. And if you're doing the math, that's three times what you get from a high school education. If we're talking about being wealthy and being independent, okay, you can take hard skills and apply them to entrepreneurship. If you don't want to go that path and you're happy to work for somebody else and you want the security of that life, and a lot of people do, and even if you're listening and that's you, awesome, right? The higher your level of educational attainment, all things being equal, the more money you will earn. So my advice to 20-year-olds is get some hard skills. And I think it's really interesting. You know, we talk about the MBA and the JD at $4.7 million. Uh, if you get a bachelor's in architecture or engineering, you're at 3.8. If you get one in computers, statistics, or math, 3.6 million. Okay. So that is a, a, more than double the high school just for those four years of your life. And if you start to look at those numbers and you say, well, college is so expensive. Sure it is. But in this country, we've essentially made it not free, but near it. In other words, we've capped uh, an Obama era law caps your payback of college tuition at 10% of your discretionary income. What that turns into for somebody earning $150,000 a year is pocket change, pocket change. And so we offer such beautiful loan terms on that education. You'd be silly not to get one, but you'd also be silly to get one in something that doesn't involve both hard and soft skills that you can later turn into something. Uh, I've got a couple of follow-up questions. One is, um, this is something that Cal Newport talks a lot about. He talks a lot about it in relation to 
graduate school. And it's this idea of like, don't just go to school because I hope it, I hope it turns into something good. Like I hope it, those numbers yield, you know, two or three years after I go to school. But in fact, build a specific plan towards a specific aim and then reverse engineer that and, and ask yourself a couple questions. One, is it clear to me that if I go to this school and get this degree, that job is highly likely? And if so, okay, that then call again, he talks a lot about this in graduate school. I think there's a little bit of gray area with undergrad, but the, I think the point stands. And then also he hit one of his suggestions that I love is, can I find people who have gone down this path and either just as proof of this path being viable and even better such that I can ask them, what did you do? How did you do it? What should I avoid doing, et cetera? So I think that's really useful. And I think it's skipped over in the undergraduate decision process. It's just like, you should just go and you'll find yourself and you'll figure it out. I think you can find yourself and figure it out and have the college experience while at the same time having a, having a sense that this plan leads to this kind of outcome. So that's one thing. And, and please add on to that if you'd like, but I want to, I want to bring in two things or I want to bring in one more thing, which is there's two kind of counter cultural pieces of advice in here, uh, that you're giving. One is that it's maybe this harkens back to what I said, where like entrepreneurship is, is kind of be, is having a moment, right? Social media, et cetera. So a lot of people are saying like, you don't need to go to college. It's over, it's overpriced. It's by the time you get out, the skills have changed because things move so fast that college can't keep up with. And then inside of that as well is the conversation about like, well, college is way too overpriced. You don't get nearly what you get, what you pay for coming out of it. And your advice is actually counter to both of those. And so I just love to hear why you're going in one direction or why you're arguing for one thing when it seems like a lot of people are trying to make the case for the opposite of it. Let's talk first about entrepreneurship and college and finding yourself as an undergrad. If you major in architecture, engineering, computer science, math, business, the hard skills that pay as an undergraduate, you still have an extraordinary amount of free time, an extraordinary amount. You want to take an art class and find yourself? Do it. You want to do creative writing? Do it. You want to take a poli-sci or a psych course so you understand? Do it. You have time. People double major in three years. Now, they're psychotic. Don't do that. But you can. And so I want to kind of push away this idea that you can either get a hard skill or find yourself. Nonsense. You can do both. Okay. Now, when we talk about you don't need to go to college because you can start your own business, guess what you don't know if you've never had a job at a company that is successful? You don't know how companies work. And so if I took a 19-year-old who was in college, pre-college, and said, okay, you're going to develop a business that does XYZ, develops, uh, let's call it iPhone apps. Okay. What do you know about legal and compliance? How about HR? Okay. How do you structure a company so that your contracts are all being reviewed and properly reviewed? And they're going to look at me and go, what? And how do I know this? Because I was a 25-year-old entrepreneur who just went and did all that stuff and got in all kinds of trouble constantly <laughs> by because I didn't know how things worked, because I never worked anywhere where I had enough exposure to how things should work. And so this is where we bring in Cal Newport's advice. Get a hard skill, get 
know what job you're going to get so that you can go there and steal every ounce of knowledge that you possibly can about how things work. You'll get a job at, at a company. Let's say you do it in engineering or computer engineering. Don't pay attention to your job other than to do it. Pay attention to how things work. What are the divisions? Who runs it? How does money get raised? How do they acquire clients? What does that look like? Work there for two or three years and you're going to have such a head start as a 23 or 24 year old starting your company. And you're also going to be able to use other people's money because when you sit in front of investors and you say, I've got this great idea. And by the way, I worked at this top tier engineering firm and I know how things work. They're going to have a lot more confidence in your ability because you have a pedigree. You come from somewhere. So can you start a company at 18 with no knowledge and do it? Yeah. But do you think you're not going to get an education and pay for it? You're just going to pay for that education by screwing up where you could go pay for that education and have hard skills that you can fall back on. Because here's the other thing about entrepreneurship, guys, that nobody's telling you when you don't go to college. Most companies fail. Most companies fail. Yours probably will. <laughs> it might before you get rich and it might be helpful to be able to go get an income based on your resume as you're thinking of your next idea. So I think about that degree as you're going to get an education somehow and you might as well pay for it with one that comes out with a piece of paper that enables you to learn something and take shortcuts uh, while you're young. As far as the cost of an education, I went to the University of New Hampshire when an education was $8,000 a year plus room and board. There are good deals in higher education and we focus on aggregate and average statistics. You know, and there's a saying that you never want to cross a river that's on average six feet deep, right? Because statistically, the middle could be 20 feet deep and both of the shores could be one foot deep. And so, you know, what you want to think about is not how much is the average college cost is where can I get the most bang for my buck? Where can I go get the right degree with the high skills at the lowest amount of dollars? And here's one of the secrets that I found out kind of by accident. Education is eminently hackable. By going to the University of New Hampshire, I was going to a place where my SAT score put me in the top 1% of applicants. What that meant in the classroom was that um, I was, frankly, academically head and shoulders above my peers, which also meant that the opportunities accrued to me. When the professor was looking for somebody to intern in the state senate, it was me. When they were looking for somebody to join a lobbying firm as a senior, it was me. When it was getting grants for psychology research, again. So there's a benefit in being literally at the undergraduate level, a big fish in a little pond. And then when I went to grad school, and I know this sounds like I'm reading my resume, but I really think there's a, <laughs> I really think there's a benefit here. Uh, I went not to grad school. I went to the Harvard Extension School, where you get access to literally Harvard professors and the, that education at community college rates. And there are extensions like this all over the Ivy. You can go to adult education at Georgetown and Dartmouth and Harvard and Yale. And you know who has to teach those classes? The same people who <laughs> teach the kids who are paying $80,000 a year. And I'm pretty sure that tuition was $1,600 per class per semester. So I went and acquired a whole hell of a lot of hard skills from literally some of the best professors on the planet for 
change for the price of a Honda Civic. <laughs> so education's hackable. Understand that. Go get one. And, uh, you know, so I hope that helps you understand why my advice is, is so contrarian, Pat. Brilliant. And there's a lot of there's a lot of the, the balance of future you and um, present you, now you inside of that, embedded in that. Let's move on, though. Uh, I feel like we could keep talking about this uh, particular um, area, but let's let's shift course and go jump into health a little bit. Advice to 20 year olds as it relates to health. Where do you want to begin there? Yeah, so you get health almost for free when you're 20. You can you <laughs> yep. can you can not sleep. Uh you can eat pizza, drink beer. Uh you can kind of uh not exercise and still quote unquote look healthy. Uh don't fall into that trap. We lionize that trap, you know. Boy, the when I was 20, I sure didn't have this spread across my middle. Yeah. Boy, you're lucky. I could eat anything and it I didn't matter. I could eat anything and it didn't matter. <laughs> Guess what? It matters. It matters molecularly. And I think the more interesting thing isn't does it matter or not matter to present you. It's that the habits that you develop when your, your brain is still plastic, literally neuroplasticity, uh, when your brain is still plastic as a teenager. And the male executive function doesn't stop uh, developing until you're 25, 26 years old. The more that you can build habits when you're young, the more they will carry you in middle age and beyond. So if you want to be the 30 and 40 year old who exercises, guess what? You should probably be the 18 year old who exercises. You know, if you want to be the person who cooks their own meals when you're 30 and 40, when it does matter, when if you don't, you will get fat and you'll get metabolically deranged and you'll get all kinds of exposure to disease of Western civilization. Develop those habits when you're young. So here are the ones I want you to focus on. If you are, in fact, 20 or giving advice to a 20-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 25-year-old, stop drinking. Stop drinking. It's poison and it's not helping you. It's helping you make bad decisions. Bad decisions as to what you should be doing in the moment. Bad decisions as to who you should be partnering with romantically. Uh, bad decisions as to what you should do the next day. I had a psychobiology course my senior year of college. That met at 8.30 in the morning. I never went to it. Luckily, luckily, I was at the top of the department and I asked the professor, who was also the chair of the department, if I could just take the tests. And he said yes. So uh, ask for what you want. But the reason that I couldn't get up at 8.30 and go to this psychobiology <laughs> class wasn't that it wasn't interesting. It was that I was working at a bar and drinking every night, right? And so the opportunity cost of that fun pales in comparison to what you're giving up. Uh, the other thing that I would suggest you get in the habit of doing as a 20-year-old <clears throat> is um, associating with the right people. Get the right friends. Those who are achievement-oriented, who are doing good things both academically and outside, those who are giving uh, outside of themselves. And those who have good habits, their hobbies tend to look like sports. Their hobbies tend to look like trips and travel. Their hobbies tend to look like learning new things, not getting wasted and chasing uh, wherever their sexual preference lies. You know, And so I had the wrong friends for a long time and did a lot of the wrong things. Luckily, was able to keep that separate 
but you know and to continue to achieve on the back of making a lot of bad choices but we can think about bad choices as accruing right people end up in really bad places by just a few bad decisions or maybe even an instant of bad decision right um assaults murders uh sexual uh, assault all of these things tend to involve alcohol Okay, don't put yourself in that position. But at the same time, understand that good things accrue as well. If you're spending time with your friends, exercising, talking about your emotions and your feelings, talking about how to overcome problems, uh, banding together to solve larger problems than any of your own, et cetera, those are going to compound over time. And what you're going to find is that as your friends succeed, they're able to give you a hand up. And as you, you succeed, you're able to give your friends a hand up. So that habit is, is a big one. Uh, and the last one, listen, if you're 20, you're going to probably ignore this <laughs> sleep. Yeah. Go to bed, go to <laughs> bed. Like nothing good happens after 10 o'clock is real. Yeah. Right. So go to sleep and what you'll find, especially on a college campus is if you go to bed at 10 o'clock and you happen to wake up at seven or eight. It's like <laughs> it's like you've wandered into Armageddon because nobody <laughs> there's nobody anywhere. There's no line for your coffee. The dining hall is wide open to you. You can sit in the library and it's dead quiet. You know, you can go to the gym and you know how it, every treadmill is just completely occupied at 5 p.m. Like guess when it's not 8 a.m. at all. So uh, anyway, go to bed. Uh, that'll be a habit. And you know, how many adults, Pat, do you know that say, I can't sleep? Can we pretend that that's because of recent events for them? What if it's not? What if it's because they never learned to sleep? What if it's when their brains were really plastic, they stayed up all goddamn night? It's an interesting question. I don't know if it's worth anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love that. Okay. So uh, we're going to jump into our last uh, one because I think we've only got our last category of time freedom. Uh, I think we've only got one thing to mention, which is to say yes uh, as a default, which runs counter to one of our rules. In fact, I think it's our, our number one rule of time, which is to default to no. So unpack why those things are different for a 20-year-old than it is a 35, 40-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is about what you quoted from Ravikant, right? When you are 30 and 40, responsibility will pile up. You will have duties to a family. You'll have duties to your community, duties to your employer that you just don't have when you're 20. And what you need to be doing is exploring not only your curiosity, uh, but you need to be exploring how you can possibly make an impact. Now, if you're a 20-year-old who has a very well-defined main thing, I'm going to be shocked. You know, we talk about those periods as time where we need to go find ourselves. Find yourself by saying yes to useful things. Okay. I'm not talking about saying yes to the being in a youth hostel across Europe for a year, although do that because that would be awesome. You'll, you'll remember it for the rest of your life, but say yes to professional opportunities in general, uh, even if, and especially if they make you the low man or low woman on a on a, a hierarchy where the top of the hierarchy is somewhere you want to be right so that rule essentially says you should have infinite humility in what you're willing to do you should get a job that you can do 
And to my earlier advice, you should pay infinite attention to what the adults in the room are doing. How are they raising money? How are they getting customers? How are they building the thing? And the neat thing is, is 20-year-olds have ninja-like invisibility in companies. Nobody knows who you are or gives a shit. And so you can be like, well, I'm striving for significance. That's horrible. No, it's not. You're invisible. Ask naive questions. They're going to think you're 20. Ask how they do that. Ask how they hired that person. Ask if you can do that thing. Uh, they'll go, aren't you cute? And then they'll <laughs> let you do it. So use that ninja-like invisibility to kind of find out everything uh, that you can say yes more than you say no. You should only say no if either you literally don't have the time uh, or you're really sure that who the people at the top of that hierarchy are not people you want to be. All right. We're going to move on. Thank you, John. That was fun. Uh, if you out there listening know a 20-year-old who could use some <laughs> advice or you find yourself in a position uh, to give advice, um, the best way to, to help us continue to grow uh, Optimal Agency is to share the show. So joking aside, if you know a 20-year-old, uh, send them this episode. Uh, if you know a 40-year-old uh, with a 20-year-old or a 50-year-old with a 20-year-old, send them this episode. This could be helpful to them. Uh, it is, again, like I said, the best way for us to continue to get to do this show. And we thank you in advance for sharing it. We're going to close out this here episode with, I just kind of wanted your hot take on something that I found recently. I was uh, I was perusing the interwebs as one does. And I came across this in... Um, it's a, a, a news site called Axios. And uh, the headline is The Laziness Tax, Why Your Money Is Not Accruing High Interest. And this this kind of seems like a small thing, but it's kind of why I wanted to bring it up. And here's just a little bit of the article just to give it some context, which is um, why checking accounts don't pay interest. Uh, why do banks offer separate checking and savings accounts? They sometimes claim it's in response to consumer demand that consumers want a place to keep their savings that is separate from their main transaction account. The real reason, however, is that the distinction allows banks to pay zero interest on billions of dollars sitting in checking accounts. So the laziness tax is what happens when we uh, aren't proactive about moving money from interest accruing accounts to non-interest accruing accounts. In other words, uh, savings accounts, checking accounts. How do you think about chasing, chase, uh, checking and savings account? Is this one of those places that seems small but is worth optimizing for, or is it so small that it's not worth optimizing for? Yeah, it's interesting. By not, it can be so small it's not worth optimizing for, but there's a bigger principle at work here, which is there are often cases where the utility of something to the individual is dwarfed by the utility of it to the conglomerate that is able to uh, uh, essentially centralize it or amass it. For instance, your personal data, right? Fairly useless to you to know what your search history is. Fairly useless as a unit, but if I can get it for 400 million people, now I'm Google and it's insanely monetizable. We're talking about the same thing with the bank here. Your money in your checking account, whether that accrues no interest or 4% and you're keeping on average a month of expenses in there, doesn't matter to you. But to Axios's point, the author of this article's point, uh, it matters a lot to the bank because it amasses to billions and trillions in probably billions, not trillions, uh, billions in uh, non-interest bearing money they can use to loan out and otherwise make money with money. Okay, so screw that. <laughs> Just like you should care about your personal data, even though it doesn't mean that much to you. Don't let somebody else accrue it and, and stick it to you. And so 
listen, there's a really simple hack here. Don't have a checking account. Don't have a checking account. You don't need one. Here's how to, here's how to work it. Get a high interest savings account. I use Capital One uh, 360 uh, savings, which currently I believe pays four and I want to say a quarter percent, maybe 4.35 as of this recording. Then pay for everything you pay for either by a direct draft on that account. So most savings accounts give you six drafts a month. Your, your objective is merely to pay for everything automatically with six or less drafts. Okay, so set up your mortgage as the first one or your rent to come out of your savings account. Cool, you got five left. Now what I want you to do is pay for everything that you can on your credit card. That's another one. That's probably looks like all of your food, all of your discretionary spending. It looks like your gas. It looks like any restaurant spending, et cetera, everything that's elective. That's two. You've got four left. Now, pay your utilities through auto draft again to your savings account. Let's say that you have electric and heat. Okay. So now you're down to two auto drafts. You don't need them. You're done now. You're done now. And so don't have a checking account. Screw that. Don't let them do it. Don't let them do it. Accrue interest on every dollar you have. Love that. All right, cool. Thank you, John. Thank you, everybody out there for listening. Thank you for your uh, ratings and your reviews. Thank you for your questions. Again, just a reminder, get on the uh, get on the old Optimal Agency newsletter. It sends out every Tuesday morning. Hit the button, send us a question. Just hit reply, send us a question. We'd love to hear them so that we can continue to answer them in future episodes. Thank you for sharing the show. John and I will be back next week for another episode of Optimal Agency.